muscles, I mean, I think they're really cool. Tony, do you think they're cool? Absolutely. Robin? I know they're cool. You are listening to Urban So we, the, the classy naturalist drinkers that we are, um, here we are at, I should say we are at the, do you have a name for your estate? We call it the Irizarry Hillstead. The Irizarry Hillstead. It's our homestead on a crazy steep hill. I think Roger Conant had Hilo Holler, um, the Pine Barrens, and, uh, and here we are at the Irizarry Hillstead, which Tony, I just got a tour of. Um, it's my second tour, and it's kind of like, it, this is this is technically not in Philadelphia. It's right outside, right outside in a suburb called Cheltenham, which is, and this is a block of twins, I guess, up on a steep hillside <coughs> much, yeah. near railroad tracks and a stream. And, yeah. and again, as we like to point out, Philadelphia is so densely urban that our suburbs look like this is, other yeah. cities. Like this looks Herbs. like Milwaukee or Minneapolis, and like the, we had, we're going to be talking a little bit about some work being done in Boston, for example, and the areas that are urbanized that Brian Windmiller is going to be talking about are less urban than this, probably, or, or similarly, you know. And so Robin, though, has lucked—I don't lucked out. You mean you bought this house intentionally, That's um, right. with a whole lot of very steep land and some land sort of in the back, getting back to the railroad tracks. Robin is naturalist, environmental educator, and horticulturalist by training by education with landscaping background also so like he's turning it into like this native plant and bird watching like and my uh haven wood and carving and wood carving my, my wood and carving, chickens uh, I, don't know, I don't know what you call that haven i've got a stump out there that i see that swinging axe we're talking about you've seen flying squirrels out back you've seen you, you had what a, was, uh, restate tony had asked you what the bird li- list was that list for the yard? In the yard, it's it's like high seventies, maybe eighty now. Yeah. And then for the block, for the block, my patch, which is like this, the house down to the block, down to the creek, I'm like probably like one oh seven. We've had everything from a western tanager at our bird feeder to a sandhill crane that flew down the block that I got some video and audio of. <laughs> we had a bald eagle sitting in the backyard in a tree. One, uh, one day we came home. And we were looking at the spots around the house where merlins hang out to snatch bats out of the air. Yeah. You know, every native Six. plant I ever think I'll plant, Robin already has in his yard. We've had American eel down the end of the block. <laughs> oh, and you kind of got away from mentioning what we were doing with this. Yeah, we're, I'm going to need another icy stick. We, um, <laughs> I brought a bottle of gin that, I, that I, a friend gave me. Actually, a previous podcast guest host, Scott McWilliams, called Monkey 47, dry gin, and <laughs> we're combining it. Scott, please don't be upset. Um, we're combining it with, uh, with what do you call it, freezy pops? Freezy pops. Yeah. Right in a plastic wrapper. Those plastic sleeve things you pop in the freezer. We've and got a nice classy. Uh, I was like, oh, I use that as ice, but I poured way too much. We've got a Stanley thermos. A... Stanley thermos full of freezy pops. Yeah, so i got to add one more grape to my gin, and I'll call that a, a cocktail. Uh, I took three orange <laughs> and, and, and used them as ice cubes. <laughs> so it takes three, is what you're saying? So yeah. on, on the fluorescent rocks. Uh, so we are wandering a lot in this conversation. So as we have our fluorescent drinks... Well, we're giddy because we're drinking and also, like, 
Billy and I have like uber man crush on Robin. We do. It's just That's like right. it's That's well right. established. He's a perfect member of our gang. He is. And so, Robin, remind us what you do as your day job. So I'm the Philadelphia Watershed Coordinator for the Tuckany Tacony Frankfurt Watershed Partnership, or TTF as we like to call it. The creek's so nice. We named it thrice. <laughs> <laughs> That's the creek that I currently live right along here in Cheltenham, along the Tuckany. I grew up in Alney in Philly, in North Philly, where the creek is called the Tacony. Spent my days learning about frogs and everything by chasing them around in the creek down in Philly. And the creek becomes the Frankfurt Creek later on before it meets the Delaware River. So we're part of the Delaware River watershed. Well, we must say that since we're in Philly, it's Tuckany Creek once across the city limits becomes... Tacony Crick. Yeah, the Tacony Crick. <laughs> and then that's definitely the Frankfurt Crick when it meets the... Uh, so what is it? Over the the Wing of Hawking Crick and meets the Tacony Crick, and then that becomes the Frankfurt Crick. Below the confluence. And that is your na- native territory. Uh, Robin and I lived on opposite sides of Frankfurt Crick, which, which se- separated... North Philly from Northeast Philly, but we both, I mean, in fact, I worked, like, I had a job at Adams and Rising Sun in Alney, That's you right. know, so, yeah. like, it was close enough that I would go work there, you know, it's very, very close. We're, we're essentially, he lived in Alney, and I lived in Mayfair, and in between is um, Longcrest. Yep. So it's like, we lived, like, one neighbor, two neighborhoods over. So, I'm going to do a quick introductions. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, along with... Tony Crowsdale. The other co-host and guest host... Robin Irizarry. Who's so frequent a guest host, he might as well just be a co-host. Yeah. Um, and if you like our podcast, please say so and rate us on your podcasting app of choice, whether that's Stitcher or iTunes or Google Play, whatever you got. Let, people, let other people know about it by rating it. Also let other people know about it by just letting other people know about it. If you just tell your friends, post it on Facebook. Um, you can find our page pretty easily on Facebook, on Twitter, Herb Wildlife Cast. If you want to email us, you can do that at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can email us with your thoughts, comments, suggestions, ideas. We are really big on listener-submitted content or listener-suggested content. So give us an idea, and we might ask you to record part of it. <laughs> um, or we might do something and, and do it ourselves, but, but we want to get that stuff on the podcast. Robin, yeah. tell us a little bit, just a tad more about what you actually do for a living. Sure. And why you're going so, to, and what you got, in, and the kind of work that got you invited to Puerto Rico. Oh, that's good. Uh, so, as the Philadelphia Watershed Coordinator for the Tukani Tacony Frankfurt Watershed Partnership, I work uh, within the city of Philadelphia to help protect and restore the health and vitality of the Tukani Tacony Frankfurt Creek. We do that by engaging with our communities in education and restoration and advocacy. I get to spend a lot of that time in Tacony Creek Park engaging with the community, explaining you know, why it's so important to have clean water in our creek in this awesome park that really has, has been underappreciated, I think. Um, Just something that you drive over, basically. Yeah, and a lot of people are familiar with corners of the park, but they don't know, they're not familiar with the continuity of it or that there's a trail that runs through it that's part of the circuit regional trail network. Um, 
So really just helping kids in the neighborhood understand, hey, this park is here. It's an awesome place. There's awesome wildlife that use it. You know, come and learn more about it and the wildlife that live there and help us protect it and restore it and take care of it, pick up the trash. <laughs> uh, so we get to do a lot of great stuff like that um, with the support of uh, the Water Department, the William Penn Foundation, uh, viewers like you. <laughs> uh, I made a donation last year. Excellent. Ooh. Thank you, thank you. In your honor. You saved one freshwater mussel. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you get a tote bag with it. With That's right. I'm going to call it? Julie and be like, where's my tote bag? <laughs> <laughs> you can come storm drain marking with us. All right. Uh, and mark the storm drains to let people on your block know, hey, what goes down in storm drains can end up impacting. That's right. Drain. So a lot of that kind of stuff, community outreach and engagement in the park. Um, We host lots of events like bird walks and nature walks. I'll point out that right now Tony's wearing an iBird Philly shirt. Mm. That's right. And Robin's wearing a Streamkeeper shirt. Yeah, from TTF. Okay, go ahead. I was talking about that, saying how, like, you know you love your job when, like, you go on vacation and wear shirts from your job on vacation. That's it. I rock this shirt in, in Rome. And on the Mount Etna. So, and you guys are going to to Puerto Rico to a conference to talk about a so we're representing specific the effort of yours, Alliance for Watershed Education, uh, which is a collaboration of environmental centers, twenty three environmental centers throughout the Delaware River watershed. Uh, it's a initiative supported by the William Penn Foundation, uh, in efforts to really engage people around the Delaware River. And the Delaware River is the big river that. In our area, separates New Jersey from Pennsylvania and is the eastern border of Philadelphia. And it provides drinking water for 15 million people, yep. which is huge when you consider the footprint of this river in the context of the whole country. Yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty significant. Uh, so we're just trying to elevate the status of the river and, and get it cleaner and just help people really appreciate it. And we'll be talking specifically about some of the stuff that we've gotten to be a part of in um, Tacoma Creek Park. Some of the engagement efforts that we're trying, which include a mobile environmental education tool, which is basically a cargo tricycle, which is awesome, that opens up like a transformer and becomes this pop-up environmental education table that we can ride around in the neighborhood and in our neighborhood gateways of the park. Since we currently have no physical environmental sensor building, um, we bring the environmental sensor to you. So it's, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> it awesome. Kids love it, and they think we're selling ice cream all the time. <laughs> That's how you draw men. You need one. I was, I just, and the other thing about how much you love your job is I was looking, I saw someone want Powerball the other day. <laughs> yeah. $760 million, and I yeah. was like, what the happened to me? And I was like, I would literally donate 100 or more million dollars to, like, to, like, improve the environmental centers the city has. And I was like, and of course I would buy you guys won. <laughs> That's it. You know, I'm just you know, you say that, and I feel guilty because I. My first thought is, what tracts of land could I buy? Oh, that's to, I'm doing that. As well. <laughs> believe me, seven hundred. Believe me, yeah. I'm doing that as well. <laughs> I need to apologize to you for why didn't I bring you the field guides? Oh, field guides for worth three. I'm sure you're gonna buy your own, but I'm happy to lend. I'm you buy that. my own because uh, it's cool to take that with me there because they're written by Bond, James Bond. Philadelphian extraordinaire. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Did you? The, your family Puerto Rican? 
My family is Puerto Rican. Yes. So do you get to see? Do you still have family back there? I have family, a, a few family members there that I don't think I've ever met. Okay. I live in Ponce, which is the other side of the island from okay. San Juan, where we will be. And that's why I falsely assumed that you spoke Spanish. Oh yeah, well, a lot of people do. I am a Philly kid, who's Puerto Rican, and spoke very little Spanish. Can understand Spanish, but most of my grandparents. Spoke. I guess so, for some reason I thought you. you I guess because. But I guess Dorian provides the uh, Dorian, Spanish translations for yes. your for your not you. A wonderful colleague Dorian, who is from Puerto Rico, and his family's from San Juan, and she has really helped us in being able to translate just about everything we do into Spanish. And it's great because having someone on your staff who speaks Spanish in a largely Spanish-speaking community is great because you had people before who would just come up and. You know, you have your table set up and everything, and people will come up and... Oh, that's nice. Like, what's yeah. up? Okay. And then they realize you can't speak Spanish. It's like, smile, nod, okay, thanks, I'm done here. Yeah. And so now, I mean, having people on your staff who are fluent in the language really just helps build those relationships and get people who might have otherwise just walked away to actually stick around and talk with you and, and yeah. become your friends and join your friends group. Captain in our case. Awesome. We want to hear all about what you see in San Juan. Um, and if you get out of the city and find yourself near some bat caves, keep an eye out yes. for the Puerto Rican boa, which is oh, a, yeah. I think, an endangered species, which will ha- sometimes hang around bat caves picking off bats. But Are you going to get out to... Uh, to the bat cave, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to go to a jump at all? I was prepared for it because I heard it my entire life. <laughs> Um, I, I hope to. Robin is a is a is a logical guest co-host on anything we do, pretty much. But in particular, um, I wanted to do a couple, rec- put in a couple interviews or recordings that relate to watershed critters, urban watershed critters, let's say. And so we're going to listen to an episode of Brian Windmiller of Grassroots Wildlife Conservation Inc. And he'll give the full introduction. Basically, it's a conservation organization in the Boston area, and he is going to talk about two projects. One, reintroducing marbled salamanders in a neighborhood near Boston, in a a suburb near Boston, but an urbanized area um, near Boston. And again, as Tony points out, what we snobs in West Philly and Center City, Philadelphia, think of as urban, or what we think of as suburban in Philadelphia is actually quite urban most places. And I should say, we did this interview like a year and a half ago, and Brian notes that the Marbled Salamander Project is proceeding. The next one is a little bit stalled out just because there's not much to do um, but study and keep an eye on them, and that is an interesting population of a rare small fish called the Bridled Shiner. I'm Brian Windmiller. And I'm executive director of Grassroots Wildlife Conservation. We're a nonprofit in Massachusetts, and we do uh, local projects that materially improve the conservation status of rare species. So if we do our work well, then after some number of years, simply put, there will be more of the species or at least in that population that we work with than there was at the beginning. And we do all of our projects in a way that involve a tremendous amount of outreach and participation with people who live around the rare animals and plants we work with. 
in particular, we work with uh, several thousand uh, school children a year who work in various phases of our project and also with lots of adult volunteers. So marble salamanders are one species in a group of rather large salamanders that live in North America called the mole salamanders. And like their name implies, mole salamanders mostly live underground as adults. And they breed in water, or at least um, the larvae start out their lives in water. Marble salamanders in particular are um, a species that as adults uh, have this really beautiful pattern of bars across their back, uh, black and white bars. So they're sort of zebra striped. And um, they're about the biggest ones are six or seven inches long, including the tail, and quite chunky. And um, unlike most of the other related species, what makes marble salamanders rather unique in our area is that uh, moms and dads mate in the autumn rather than in the spring. And mom lays her eggs actually under logs or under leaves in the dry part of a small pond basin. So these are ponds or vernal pools more properly that usually dry up or at least dry down during the summer and early fall. So mom, in Massachusetts anyway, uh, after meeting with dad, finds this place that's hidden on the bottom of a dry pool basin and lays her eggs. And then, um, in most years, what happens here is, so she's usually doing that in September, maybe early October. And most years over here, um, the, during the autumn months, the water levels get higher. And if she chose correctly, then fairly soon, the rising water levels will reach her nest. So mom, also unusual among salamanders, stays and protects her eggs for quite some time during the often cold autumn weather. And she waits for the water to reach her nest, at which point she, mom, who can't swim very well, she would drown if she were tossed into the middle of a big pond. She takes off and heads back into the woods. The eggs hatch into small larvae, kind of like tadpoles with external gills. And those little salamander larvae uh, grow throughout the winter under the ice, eating uh, small freshwater shrimp and similar organisms. And then they are ready to turn into, if everything goes right, to turn into small salamanders themselves, usually by June or July of the following year. And it will take them here near the northern edge of their range. It will take them about four years to grow up, to become fully adult and able to reproduce themselves. During that time, they'll be living in the woods underground. And then they start the cycle over again when they reach maturity. They'll migrate over to a vernal pool, to a small pond that's at least partially dry in the fall, mate, and um, lay their eggs. And they can live to be at least 10 or 15 years old in some cases, though most of them probably somewhat shorter than that. Talk about the site where you're working on reintroducing them. Sure. So in Massachusetts, so again, Massachusetts is right at the northeastern edge of the range for this species, or the northern edge of the range. And there are 
a couple of populations that just barely make it over the border into New Hampshire. But for the most part, northeastern Massachusetts was as far north as they got. And in northeastern Massachusetts, as is true throughout much of the eastern U.S., um, our area had throughout the 20th century been developed really heavily. Uh, forests have been chopped down. Uh, the forests that these animals depend upon, their small breeding ponds have been drained or filled in, and roads were built across the migratory pathways of these animals. So for all these reasons, populations have declined sharply. Um, the species is now a threatened species in Massachusetts. And in particular, in northeastern Massachusetts and north of Boston, the species has pretty much disappeared. So we are working now at one particular site. It's called Middlesex Fells, and it's the largest urban uh, wilderness, if you will, in the metro Boston area. At its nearest end, it's only a, a couple of miles from the nearest edge of the Boston municipal limits. It's well within, most of it lies within the, the dense, rather urban inner suburbs of towns like Medford and Malden and Melrose. Um, and yet, it's an area that's um, more than 800 acres in size, um, large extent now of forested rocky uplands and many wetlands, an area that had been cleared historically in the past. And marble salamanders lived in at least one site there until just about World War II. The last observation in Middlesex Fells was in 1938, but somewhere around there they disappeared completely from that area and indeed from most of Massachusetts north of Boston. So we are now um, starting the first that we know about reintroduction project for the salamander. And if uh, things go right and they have to date, we should be releasing our first group of young marbled salamanders in Middlesex Fells this May. Something I was kind of wondering about the project, and this is maybe a general question about um, when you're reintroducing animals into fragmented patches or fragmented habitat, um, I mean, this is the, the initial reintroduction effort. Do you see yes. the need in the future um, for, I don't know, I mean, sort of continued support of the population, sort of artificial in the sense of, I mean, now it's, it is a, it is now an, if it, is, if it succeeds, you'll have an isolated population, um, that is presumably vulnerable to the local scale disturbances that could wipe them out, um, and then also might be sort of vulnerable to sort of, I guess, genetic isolation by not being close to, not, not being able to connect with other ones. Is this something that you see, you foresee management, even if it's not you guys necessarily, but sort of a management need going forward? Yeah, those are, those are great questions, really, really good questions, and ones that we're continuing to think about and to work, work on with um, all of our project partners. So in this particular case, um, the reason why we think Middlesex Fells is a good spot is because the forest has regrown, as it has in many areas of the Northeast. So the, in Massachusetts, for example, Massachusetts had was least forested around 1850, uh, around the time that Henry David Thoreau was writing in his journal. And since that time, uh, there's been a general trend towards increasing forest cover. 
although just in recent decades that's balanced again by by uh, an increase in suburban development. So Middlesex Fells seems to now be a really good spot for the salamanders. There's lots of forest, rocky forest, which they like, and lots of you know, pools. But you're right, Middlesex Fells is completely surrounded by urban development and very large roadways. There's an interstate highway that um, splits the area. And so on their own, there's no chance that these small animals, which move by crawling directly on the ground, are going to find their way across the highways and into the fells. By releasing them to Middlesex Fells, we will be creating an isolated population. And as far as managing that population, if it succeeds into the future, a couple of considerations are, one, for many amphibian species, they're actually much better than many vertebrates that we think of at tolerating being in populations that are quite isolated. If you think about it again, for animals that normally can't move very far across the landscape, that's probably historically been a very common situation for them. The second part, though, is that we would, at this time, thinking forward, we uh, would certainly be interested in the idea of helping artificially mix genes. So we're hoping that the Middlesex Fells population of marbled salamanders will be pretty much entirely self-sustaining after several years of reintroduction. But they will be isolated in this rather large but road-ringed um, urban wilderness area. And so in the future, we would certainly suggest to the State Division of Fisheries and Wildlife and other people involved in the management of marble salamander populations in Massachusetts that they consider um, moving animals from one isolated population to another because unless, you know, the future in – a hundred years involves, you know, some technological changes that allow us to have fewer roads and allow us to make new connections. Um, well, we all between, have our hovercraft, yeah. Yeah, if we all have our hovercraft, then we can get, tear up Route 93 and the salamanders will be golden. But barring, barring that kind of wonderful future, if we continue to have a situation in which these, these areas are isolated, then the only chance for them to have any kind of genetic interchange is if we humans get involved and simply move salamanders uh, from one place to another. Hey, podcast listeners. I then asked Brian about grassroots work with a small endangered minnow called the bridal shiner. Sure. So bridal shiners are small minnows, um, and... Minnows are, although people use the word minnow pretty much any small fish, technically minnows are a discrete family, large family of fish, mostly pretty small, but it also includes goldfish and carp on the bigger end. And North America is really rich in minnow diversity. And any of the small minnows are in groups that are commonly referred to as shiners. There are dozens of species of shiners in the eastern U.S., particularly down in the southeast. And um, here in New England, we only have a few native species, one of which is this very pretty but very small uh, kind of straw-colored minnow. The adults are only about two inches long, so they have 
this pretty sort of straw yellow to almost golden during breeding season color with a black line that runs right along the sides and right around the nose, uh, the snout of the fish. They're called bridal, not like bridal like getting married, but bridal, B-R-I-D-L-E, um, for the bridal of a horse because of the black stripe that kind of runs right, right around the snout of the fish like the bridal of a horse. And uh, bridal shiners once lived all along the eastern seaboard of the United States from as far south as North Carolina, all the way into uh, southern Canada. And they have become rare pretty much everywhere in that range. They are, to my knowledge, are, are thought to have been completely wiped out in Maryland, all but wiped out in North Carolina. In your state, Billy, in Pennsylvania, they were, again, all but wiped out, um, and there were a couple of reintroduction efforts for this species in, um, in recent decades. And in Massachusetts, again, the species uh, has shown to have lost a great deal of range. In one study by the New England Aquarium up here, uh, just looking back at records for this fish over a 20-year period, the researchers found that just over 20 years, um, in the late 20th century, the species disappeared from a whole bunch of areas that they had been present in. And there are a few decent populations in far western Massachusetts along the Housatonic River. But in eastern Massachusetts, there are relatively few populations, and most of them are very small right now. Why are there so few of them left? Well, uh, like many things, you know, people weren't really looking very carefully. So... In answer to that, I should, you know, put in the caveat that nobody really knows because nobody was really paying attention. So we have to do, <laughs> you know, sort of some sleuthing. We have to use what we know about what's been happening to habitats over the past, say, 60 or so years or more, and think about how that might have affected the fish. And bridal shiners have the bad luck to like um well-vegetated, slow streams and ponds, shallow ponds with lots of aquatic vegetation that are in sandy coastal plain areas from North Carolina up along the seaboard, the, the eastern seaboard of the U.S. And that, of course, is exactly where people have historically liked to build cities. So the core of the Bridal Shiner Range lies within what demographers in the U.S. have called the Boswash Corridor, right, the, the megalopolis of urban areas that yeah. spreads from Boston all the way down to D.C. And you can imagine what happened to habitats like that. Streams have been put into um, ditches and put into pipes. Um, small ponds have been drained or filled in or polluted. Um, there's been massive habitat destruction. And more than that, some other specific things that have really affected these small fish as well as other small fish in our area um, include the widespread use of herbicides, which has wiped out the aquatic vegetation um, that the fish depend upon, the introduction of predatory fish that are not native to our area. So people in Massachusetts like to go out fishing in small ponds or streams and catch largemouth bass or catch brown trout, neither of which is a species that's native to New England. 
So those are big predator fish that have been moved into habitats that used to lack such large predators, and they're happy to eat small minnows like bridal shiners. And then finally, um, in decades that stretch from mostly, I think, the 1940s or 1950s into the 1970s, depending upon which state you were in, um, state divisions of fisheries and wildlife at that time really saw their mandate as being creating good fishing habitat for anglers. And that meant moving species like largemouth bass and brown trout and rainbow trout around and, and introducing them into places that they didn't exist. But it also meant that um, many fish, state fisheries and wildlife organizations, including here in the past in Massachusetts, actually managed a lot of these uh, small streams and small ponds to get rid of um, native fish, which were regarded as trash fish, and they would do this with a poison called rotenone. Um, so it's a fish poison that kills pretty much all fish, and uh, fisheries managers in the 1950s and 1960s would dump rotenone into a small pond, collect all the fish that were killed, the compound breaks down naturally, and uh, after the rotenone had done its job, they would introduce largemouth bass for anglers to catch, and they would introduce a couple of other species to help feed the bass, like golden shiners, which are native, but um, just one species. And so they would kind of create these very simple, partially exotic um, fishery ecosystems. And, of course, the bridal shineries were regarded they're tiny fish. Nobody who goes out fishing has any interest in these two-inch-long minnows. The bridal shineries would be killed by the rotenone and were not reintroduced. So that's another problem that they faced. We work, we try and work with um, small species that um, most other people are not particularly interested in, and again, that we, that we can really help out. And so we found out in conversations with folks at the New England Aquarium that oddly, pretty close to the area in Massachusetts where our office is, is um, a small stream called Vine Brook. And this is a brook that like, you know, I was talking about before, the headwaters of this brook are really urban in the, some of the densest um, Boston inner suburbs. And the um, much of the headwaters of the brook were actually rerouted into perfectly linear ditches um, about 30, 40 years ago when a large shopping mall was built in the area. And, um, and yet somehow the lower reaches of Vine Brook are offer this amazingly pristine kind of aquatic habitat. It's the brook flows right next to large roads behind industrial parks, and yet somehow the lower part of the brook has really lush aquatic vegetation, and it has a bunch of really rare fish for our area, including a really large population of the bridal shiner, the largest population by far that anyone knows of in eastern Massachusetts. So folks from New England Aquarium told us about this. They had been interested in this population. They actually had worked in the past just to see what it was like to keep bridal shiners in captivity and to breed them in captivity. And so we went out with um, one of the aquarists from New England Aquarium first, and we've been going back to the site 
now for about five years and tracking this population in Vinebrook. After, you know, a history like I described before in which divisions of fisheries and wildlife uh, had this tendency to move fish around willy-nilly, they've now understandably gotten very conservative about moving fish around. And they um, properly and understandably want to make sure that there's no possibility that diseases get transferred around. So they they are particularly careful about um, any proposal to translocate fish. So thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Billy. Good luck. I can imagine the bridal shiners have other types of habitat outside cities. <clears throat> Time for another freeze pop. Uh, <laughs> but the bridal shiners, um, they they probably have other habitat elsewhere that is better overall kind of habitat than like a little stream in suburban Boston. Um, and that marbled salamanders, marbled salamanders to be sure, are doing um, quite well in other more rural or wild parts of the range. Like, if you want to wander around the, the, the I don't know, anywhere in New Jersey, practically, um, as well as a lot of rural Pennsylvania, you can find them hanging out in, in, in vernal pools in the sort of winter into the spring. But I think of it as there being a particular value to preserving them in urban areas. And so it's kind of like, for me, it's a fun question that we come up across a lot in the podcast, which is like, Urban areas might be particularly valuable habitat, but they're also habitat near people. And one of the things Brian talks mentions in his work is how the organization does a lot with school kids and with other group like urban groups um, in their conservation projects. So I don't know if he would describe it this way, but I certainly would say that that's a combination. It's conservation for conservation's sake. It's also conservation for education's sake, um, and also conservation for sort of like connecting us to our heritage and just sort of something that we should all enjoy as a right of being humans on the planet. I'm doing this on the citizen science kind of level and sort of as a volunteer level, but the two professionals, Tony and Robin, do you do it because, like, like we should have marbled salamanders here, or do you do it because Philadelphians or Bostonians should be able to see what the hell a a marbled salamander is and enjoy it? I think when you look at a small patch... Like Taconic Creek Park, for instance, and you think about the wildlife that lives there, I don't think it's a necessarily you're going to save X number of wildlife in this patch. I mean, there's it's a, it's a critical patch in migration and everything like that, but I think the, the strength there is really in exposing more people to the resource of you know, just seeing that there's wildlife there and just seeing the kind of, ex, you know, growing up in, in the city, growing up in Philly and Olney, I always thought that I'd have to go to Alaska to see bald eagles and beavers. And now I, I'm in the position where I can show kids in inner city Philadelphia bald eagles and beavers. And that doesn't mean that that space is going to forever harbor bald eagles and beavers, while I hope it does. And while I hope it, you know, becomes healthier and, you know, through management, I think the the more critical use of that space is in having people understand, just exposing people to that and helping them understand, like, hey, this is what the natural world looks like. And, you know, if we're not careful, 
we can erase these spaces from yeah. <laughs> everywhere, just about. So really helping, you know, helping people make that connection and say like, hey, you know, this is this is something that's really important and it's something worth preserving. Um, cool. You know, it was really formative in my, you know, appreciation of nature, my time spent in Tacona Creek Park. Fishing for minnows with McDonald's straws and, and marshmallows. Does that work? No. It turns out <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> and Robin gets way more into stewardship side of things than I do. I'm, I'm purely education. I mean, I do a little bit of that, but like Robin and I, our parks are very similar. You know, in, in many levels, I feel kindred spirit with Robin, but one of them is that like we both have this affinity for. You know, Philly has Pennypack and Wissahickon, which are two of the finest parks in any city in the world. Like, if you wanted to come and see pretty much any bird you can see in Pennsylvania, um, that's not, you know, not, not a wetland or water bird, you, uh, even some of those, you can go to Pennypack and Wissahickon and see those birds, uh, almost all of them. And um, if you want to like, go mountain biking, you want to have an immersive hike, you go to Pennypack and Wissahickon. They're world-class parks. Yep. Um, but you could see... The majority of that same stuff in Taconi and, and uh, Cops Creek, they're, they're not quite as scenic. Um, the gorges are not quite as deep, um, but they're they're great resources, and they're underappreciated and underserved. Um, and the community around them desperately needs them, and so you know they're both near to our hearts. They're like these you know, on unsung parks uh, that are magnificent you know yeah. and the other if they were in any other city they'd be like full of resources because they're but I think they get overlooked because the other parks are so big yeah I'm bummed out because a lot of times when you look at a map of Philly you see the green patches of the Wissahickon and the Pennypack and we don't even get any green <laughs> it's like it's like <laughs> it's a real park I've been we there we don't even merit the green vector shape. we let a whole that. bike there last year it's running those maps get us some green yeah, come on yeah it's come on. A, I see the same thing with Cost Creek our, our, it's, we have 850 acres yeah it's a big park how big is your, how big is the county we're 300 acres yeah it's a lot of space so well, half of that is golf course though well yeah alright so um, so what I want to do is, is pivot a little bit because one of the critters in Philadelphia that is or categories of critters that's getting some real conservation boost um, in an urban setting uh, are the freshwater mussels. We're going to hear more about it from Kurt Chang of the Partnership for the Delaware Estuary. But before we get to Kurt, you've done some of this stuff in the Taconi. Yeah, it was mostly in um, the Taconi Creek. Um, two years ago, we participated with the Partnership for the Delaware Estuary. Kurt and Danielle came out, and we actually placed mussels into Coney Creek, um, they were doing a test study to see the feasibility of doing, I guess, some kind of reintroduction efforts. Um, we met with them down at, um, just below the Tacone, I no, it was the Frankfurt Creek boat launch, and we actually tagged some of these mussels, and they put the little, um, you know, the epoxy little... <coughs> Tags pit tags on, on yeah. yeah. Pit tags, that's what it is, pit tags. And that we can actually scan, you know, they were able to scan with 
it looks like a metal detector. Can you detect them when they're down in the mud? Yeah. They, nice. I mean, they can. They, it's like a metal detector with a long arm, and they yeah. go through, and it can read the. I guess it reads the number on the. On the yeah. So we epoxy a little pit tag on them, and we put a number on them. Um, and these were the uh, Elliptio complanata, the Eastern Elliptios, the ones that um, Kurt was talking about. Um, so they introduced. A uh, couple into Tacony, I think 50 in total, 25 and 25, that were locally um, collected from around the Delaware River, uh, the mouths of some of the creeks. Um, a few were placed in Tacony Creek, um, and I think they came back um, maybe a few months later and did a, an assessment, and there were about 70, it was about 70% retention. Okay, so really quick, what's yeah. your name and what do you do? So my name is Kurt Chang, and I'm the shellfish coordinator at the Partnership for the Delaware Estuary. Okay, and so um, describe where we're standing. So right here, we're in within the Fairmount Waterworks, and we're in the new uh, Muscle Hatchery exhibit. And so this is the demonstration portion of the actual hatchery. Okay. So we're standing uh, in a room divided into two parts by a glass and metal sort of wall so people can sort of come to the exhibit part with touchscreens and demonstration muscle shells and, um, and displays about why muscles are endangered uh, and can then look through and see, which is what I guess is the working hatchery. Right. So okay. we're demonstrating, you know, why we care about muscles and uh, what we can do to help our muscles in our rivers and streams. And so uh, what we did was we created this uh, kind of see-through laboratory with acrylic uh, walls that you can, you know, observe what a, a scientist would actually be doing in a muscle hatchery. All right. Um, and all the different processes that go into uh, producing new muscles. Okay. So we'll get to that in a second. But um, why do we need a muscle hatchery? So most of the muscle hatchery uh, propagation uh, in the United States are really aimed at uh, threatened and endangered species. Yep. And so while that's important, we're also trying to uh, raise the issues of the fact that we have common muscles that are not listed, but they're still important. Um, and we don't have nearly the abundance that we used to have in our rivers and streams. Okay. And so from a water quality standpoint, we're trying to um, basically rebuild our populations in our rivers and streams so they can be filtering the water for us um, okay. and putting nature back to work. So why, how do, let's talk a little bit about muscles. Why do they filter? What's a little bit so, about their, what they, what does a muscle do for a living? Yeah. So, <laughs> so a muscle basically filters water for a living. Yeah. Um, you know, as other, other organisms and animals have to eat, the way that muscles eat is that they filter out all the particulate matter, all the really small particles in the water. And so just by their very existence in our streams, they're helping to filter out all those microscopic particles and even some pollutants um, in our waters. Okay. And so if we, if we don't have the abundance that we used to, what happened to it? So a lot of the mussels have uh, petered out in a lot of the areas that they once existed. Um, they're very slow-growing species, and um, often they use fish to – they use specific types of fish to reproduce – and particularly when you have man-made structures like dams or uh, other targeted uh, 
instances of pollution or some, some place where they wipe, wiped out muscles, uh, they're not easy. They don't rebound very easily. Okay. And so um, we, it's evident in our streams where we still have some populations, but it's not quite. Uh, what we're trying to do is give them a head start. You'd expect to see more. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, just the that's you skipped over one of the most fascinating parts about muscle life. Um, right. So talk about how they use fish to reproduce. So a freshwater mussel uses a fish to reproduce, and one might ask, well, why would you even use a fish? Yep. Um, so a lot of us are wondering about why you reproduce with fish. But yeah, go ahead. The idea, <laughs> the idea is that if you're a freshwater mussel, you're in a most freshwater mussels are in a unique environment where it's one way. So yeah. that a stream only goes one way. There's no tide. Yeah. Um, contrary to saltwater uh, bivalves like clams and oysters, you know, they just kind of release their eggs and sperm, and the tides take care of the rest. Yeah. Um, so really, the, the way a freshwater mussel reproduces is that the male releases sperm, and the female takes in the sperm and fertilizes her eggs internally, and then waits uh, for her larvae to mature, and then once they're ready, she'll... Uh, depending on the species, either attract a fish or kind of sense a fish uh, in other ways and then spit out its glaucidia, its larvae, at the fish. And the fish really acts as that mode of transportation, uh, particularly when you're in a non-tidal stream. So the the larvae latch on to the fish, basically. So they actually hitch a ride for a week or two and then uh, drop off once they uh, metamorphose. Hopefully hopefully the fish has ended up upstream of where they... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Really, that fish is the only way that a mussel can stay within their streams and rivers. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, they'll get blown out uh, with the with the current. Right. Um, and particularly, one of the problems with some of these freshwater mussels that have evolved to use these very migratory fish, like blueback herring or uh, uh, alewife fish, um, is if you do have a dam and you block that fish passage, you may have a population of mussels that are actively trying to reproduce, but if the fish can't actually get to that population, yeah. then there's no reproduction that's going to occur. Yeah. Okay. So now, um, let's talk about the hatchery. Right. Okay. You want to, shall we? All right. We're now passing into the hatchery side of the hatchery. That made any sense? And there's a lot of noise behind us, but that is because we've got um, uh, a lot of machinery. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So... One of, uh, one of the big kind of pushes behind all of this was to really uh, provide to the public a glimpse of what an actual hatchery looks like, as well as what it sounds like. Ah. And so we have a lot of running water. We've done that. Yeah, yes, Jeff. <laughs> I, I hope so. Uh, so we have this unit over here, which is called a Z-Hab unit. Um, and it's really basically uh, kind of like a, like a hotel for fish and, okay. and mussels. And so we have... Each of them have their kind of little rooms. Each one has a separate So we're a looking at, tank. like, right down the middle of the room, there's a metal, like, rolling rack kind of thing mm-hmm. with stacks of acrylic or, or plastic yep. little tanks. And, and so those filtration hoses and stuff running to them. Yeah, that's right. So okay. there's a full filtration system at the bottom of the unit, and then there's all these different tanks that you can fill with water, and you can adjust the flow to each of the tanks. And so right now we have some mussels in here uh, that are gravid. That means they have some babies ready to go. Um, and so we're just kind of holding them at a nice cold temperature uh, and just letting them be. We'll, we'll feed them every day. Um, and so that's really, we use it to hold our, our mussels. And then if and when we were to have fish, uh, we would hold the fish in there too. Okay. Um, and so uh, moving on over here, we have our, our lab bench. And this, this looks is, like a lab bench. we got beakers and and... All kinds of 
just it looks like a lab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have all kinds of beakers and graduated cylinders and some microscopes, pipettes, uh, pipettes. Yeah, to be able to dose our muscles properly, feed them well, uh, as well as kind of take a look at their insides and you know uh, take a look at the microscopic world uh, to be able to to do our job. Okay. Um, and if we move on over here, we have this kind of big tank. And so this is one of our, uh, our bigger tanks that we would hold uh, larger fish. And yep. so particularly like a herring, they like to school and they like fast flow. Um, and so this is a tank that we would hold larger fish and some so mussels I as well. I see some fish in there. What kind of fish are these? So these are mummy chugs. Um, and these are kind of uh, for demonstration. And so the idea would be if you had a lot of fish in here, they'd be moving circular with the flow. Okay. Um, and we also have some mussels in here uh, just kind of for show as well. Um, and we're holding them too, so uh, okay. the public can also see, you know, fish as well as the mussels. And this is really, you know, how they would live in nature: is they live, you know, uh, concurrently together. Are you actively doing muscle reproduction right now, or is it yeah. to get set up for it? Right. So uh, we are set up for it, and we're hopeful that we can get uh, the, the proper fish hosts to uh, propagate our mussels. So you're waiting for like your alewives, your pretty your much, herring, yeah, your right. whatever else. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so right now we, have, we actually have two different species. We have the alewife floater as well as the uh, eastern elliptio. Okay. And so they require different fish. So we're kind of hedging our bets a little bit. If, if we can't get the herring, we may be able to get uh, eels or another fish that the elliptios can use. Okay. So right now we're kind of just in a holding pattern. So we got like nets out in the Delaware, like yeah, trying so, to catch some fish and see what you can grab? Right, so okay. we're working with uh, the Philadelphia Water Department and the Academy of Natural Sciences uh, to uh, get some fish uh, to be able to, to reproduce. Okay, and then when you get them, I guess you'll drop them in here, and hopefully right. then the gravid muscles will be like, yay, and they'll just like shoot out their... So the, yeah, okay. right. so the process to actually uh, get the babies onto the fish, there's a couple different processes, but one of the easiest ones is to basically put them in a tank uh, together. And the muscle will kind of warm up and then say, okay, time to release. And then the, the female muscle will basically release her larvae. And the larvae will be, you know, in the water. The fish is kind of breathing, moving around. And then all the, uh, all the larvae will attach onto the fins and the gills. Um, there's other intensive methods where you can actually open up the muscle just a little bit. And you can use a syringe to kind of pipette out a lot of the larvae okay. and you would think that maybe you know that's bad for the muscle that it would you know destroy its gills and things but really uh, those gills for those types of species uh, are actually meant to be ruptured every year or every so year uh, when they're actually reproducing Okay, so it's totally cool All right. um, and then we also have uh, some other tanks over there uh, where we're kind of just demonstrating the difference between a tank with muscles and without muscles uh, the bottom tank has muscles and is a little bit clearer than the top tank uh, uh, without muscles. Okay. Um, one of the other things that I'll point out is we have a microscope that's uh, available to the public, and that has both slides that you can see under uh, under power, uh, but you, we also have a small tablet, and that has some saved video and photos that you can kind of scroll through, and you can see some of the different processes. So. Uh, I actually photographed some actual larvae, and so the public can see larvae uh, moving around as well as uh, juvenile mussels. Okay, great. So this has been a joint effort. Um, obviously, we're at the Fairmont Waterworks, yeah. um, and we're working with Habitique as well as part, uh, ourselves, partnership for the Delaware Estuary, 
um, along with the Philadelphia Water Department, um, as well as uh, the Academy of Natural Sciences. Just as a funny, interesting extra note, we were admiring um, the, the, the hatchery and the signage and the exhibits around it have what looked like mussel shells attached to a lot of the stuff. And you were saying? Right. So we were working with uh, the artist Stacy Levy, and I basically provided her a number of actual freshwater mussel shells, and she took those shells and created molds and casts. And so we have some bronze uh, mussels that look exactly you know, true to their anatomy, true to their shell, as well as some 3D printed shells um, that are kind of uh, scattered throughout the whole exhibit. Um, all right, well, thank you very much. Yeah. Because mussels, I mean, I think they're really cool. Tony, do you think they're cool? Absolutely. Robin? I know they're cool. Anyhow, they are um, doing a great job of combining sort of the restoration work with education work and sort of the two threads we've been talking about of conservation for its own sake and for the animals or the populations of wildlife or plants' sake, and then conservation um, as a, 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 for the end of connecting residents of a place with part of their natural heritage and, and learning more about their environment. And one thing about the Elliptios, I guess their host species is the American eel. Oh yeah, and we've found American eel all the way up, like. Well, that's into a good host species because those things can slither right. around all kind of stuff. Yeah. So if you're gonna pick a host species, pick a fish that can slither over dams and around and onto land. It's it better has than to. like the sturgeon, you know. Yeah. <laughs> pick something hardy that can get where you want your babies to go. Awesome. So we've had American eel up into the headwaters of our of our tributaries here. Um, pretty good size too, so. You know, the American eel is a cool fish because they, very cool they fish. do the reverse salmon thing where they spawn. Where they catadromas. Yeah. Yeah, the cool experience that happened when we were in Tacona Creek uh, with Kurt in waders up to our chest, you know, looking for good substrate to implant the uh, muscles in for this uh, test patch that was going to be, you know, um, tracked later on. I had a, my first Tacona Creek beaver. And he swam right by me, about about maybe ten yards up. Did he slap his tail? He no, he swam right past real quick. He didn't time for that. He All didn't. Right. He didn't slip. He didn't slap or anything like that. That scared that. I was a little nervous though, because I've seen the stories of like rabbit beavers, rabbit beavers, and uh, penny pack. There was an issue with uh, you know, a few years. I think 2011. There was a woman bit by a beaver in the penny pack. So nuts. It's crazy. And, and then there's the zombie beavers. The Zombievers, yeah. That's a real movie, by the way. It's a, it's a real movie, so, you know. <laughs> Have you ever seen what a so beaver... You see what a beaver can do to an oak tree? You don't want that biting you. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. There was a guy in Belarus who... It was a sad, funny, but sad story. Where I guess a fisherman was basically, like, dragged a beaver into the boat and was messing with it. And it bit him on the thigh. And the guy, like, it, it ruptured his femoral artery. Yeah, femoral artery. And he bled out and died. Mm. Um, which you can make all kinds of jokes about, like, you know, getting bit by a beaver on your crotch and then, like, dying. <laughs> but, like, the guy actually died. <laughs> That's why people need to carry tourniquets. Carry tourniquets in case you're bit by a beaver in the field. You that, is, that is the reason why. I think we'll draw this to a close. Well, real quick, though. Oh, real quick, though. Go ahead. I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but I'm, tr- I'm trying. I really want mussels at Cows Creek because I have a lab and Stop I have lab lots of this. tanks that, like, have no use. Uh, yeah, let's talk uh, about the department. Uh, Making some muscles. Um, so, with that, thank you for listening to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. 
if you like the podcast, please rate us on your podcasting app of choice, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, wherever. Um, please tell your friends all about it. Please send us ideas for stories at our urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com or tweet at us at urbanwildlifecast. Find us on Facebook. All great ways to communicate with us. This is like the second to last episode of our very, very long second season. Yeah. So I think we got one more where we're going to talk about war and urban nature and those who love urban nature during war and after wartime. Um, so please stay tuned for that. Thank you very much to Robin. Thanks to Kurt and company from the Partnership of the Delaware Estuary. Thank you to Brian Windmiller of Grassroots. And just, you know, it's been a fun episode, fun two episodes. And again, if you're wherever you are in Rome, to Tokyo, to Buenos Aires, to Los Angeles, wherever, uh, please check us out and tell all your friends about it. Thanks. I think also you should plug Robin's wife's music. Oh, yeah. Where's your wife tonight, Robin? She is rehearsing. She is a musician. Christine Irizarry Music. You can Google that and you'll find her. (laughs) Um, Yeah. She does her own... She has her own music uh, outfit. Great band. Great bunch of people. She has a phenomenal voice. They just played the Trocadero not long ago, which is a pretty... Cool venue to be playing in Philly. I'm overdue to come and see a performance. Yeah, yeah. I, I forget why I couldn't come to the truck, but there were, I had a, an engagement. I think I was leading a walk. Yeah. I'm like, I need to head out there. Check it out, Christina. There, I need it.